0: Psalm 32 is where we're at this morning. You can take your Bibles and turn there. Uh, I'd like to read Psalm 32 and then have a word of prayer as we begin our time this morning. And uh, this psalm is a really fascinating one. Very important psalm, I think. In many ways, we, we come to this psalm and we realize that there's um, an incredible message behind this psalm. Uh, and it, 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 the setting of this psalm, the historical setting is so important. And it really helps us to see ourselves and understand who we are and what we are in the Lord when we read a psalm like this. But that doesn't make it easy. So I hope you'll bear with me today as we try to go through this psalm. But let's read Psalm 32. You can read it aloud with me if you like. There in Psalm 32, verse 1, it's only 11 verses long. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing and guidance as we study this psalm today. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you as your children. Mindful of the fact that we are often deceived by the lies of our flesh, by the lies of the enemy, by the lies of this world. We're deceived into embracing and seeking out our pleasure and the pleasure of sin. We realize that when we indulge in sin, we bring upon ourselves the chastening hand of God. We cut ourselves off from the fellowship that we have with you. so this morning I pray that you would help us to see What it means to be truly forgiven. What it means to be restored in fellowship. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk with you today. To rejoice knowing that our sins are forgiven. And to praise you for it. Lord, we ask that you would be honored and lifted up in everything that is said and done today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to think about it for a minute. It's a very simple question. Do you want to be truly happy? Do you want to be truly happy? How many of you want to be happy this morning? It's not a trick question. How many of you would like to be happy this morning? Of course, you'd like to be happy. We all want to be happy. It's interesting to me, I was doing a little bit of research there's a very, very popular song called Happy uh, that, was, uh, that was released back in 2013 and uh, a man by the name of Pharrell Williams who wrote it and sang it. And uh, that song is incredibly popular. Uh, in fact, in the year 2014, that song was downloaded over 13 million times. It's hit the number one on the pop charts in 23 countries. Three times in the United Kingdom, it's gone back to number one. Uh, it's just an incredible hit. And it's an interesting song. It's not a complicated song. Most pop songs aren't. But it, it, it's a song that's got a really catchy tune. It's a song that you listen to when you hear it. It's, it's easy to see why people like the song. Because it's a happy song. And it's a light tune and it's, it's catchy and, and people can get up and dance to it really easily and it just kind of has a, a, you know, it just has a nice feel to it. It's the kind of song people really like. It's probably going to be a hit for a long time. But it's interesting, if you look at the lyrics of the song, because I did that, and I know I'm, I'm probably too analytical for some of this stuff, but I looked at the lyrics of the song and the song talks all about being happy. And nothing can get you down because you're happy. And say whatever you want. It doesn't matter because I'm happy. But at no point in the song does it ever say why I'm happy. I'm just happy. So say what you want. Be what you want. Do what you want. I'm just happy. It's a nice song, I just don't think it's very realistic. That's just not how the world works. I mean, for, you know, for, for two minutes and five seconds or however long the song lasts, okay, you can listen to it and you go, wow, that's really cool. Your toe can tap along to it. You can clap along with the beat if you want. And it go, wow, that's kind of a nice little song. But it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't offer any sort of existential meaning or purpose or significance that would make you be happy. I can't help as I hear the song about Wishing that I could sit down and talk with Pharrell, not because I have some sort of like, you know, celebrity, you know, that I want to sit down with him. I wish I could sit down and talk with him and ask him, Are you really happy? And what makes you happy? What is it that gives you happiness? What is it that would make you truly happy? Because that's the thing I keep thinking when I hear that song. I wonder if he really is happy maybe he is maybe he is i trust that he is if he understands the truth of psalm 32 but psalm 32 is all about happiness that's how the song that's how the psalm begins look at the first word psalm 32 verse 1 blessed that word blessed is the same word that's used in psalm 1 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. The word is blessed, but it really is better translated happy. We'd be better to say, Oh, how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How happy is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. But how happy are you today? Do you want to be happy? Happiness is not found in a song. Happiness is not found in in just a couple minutes of, of losing yourself in some music and forgetting about your troubles. That's not what happiness really is. David tells us here in Psalm 32 what happiness is and where it comes from. But he says that happy is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Happy. We always talk about joy, you know. Sometimes, we're, sometimes we do happiness a disservice in, in, as Christians. We say, well, it doesn't matter if we're happy as long as we have joy. Well, okay, I understand what we're trying to say when we say that. But if we get what David is saying here, there's always reason to be happy, if we understand what David is really saying. here, There's always reason for us to be happy. Notice what he says. I think this is really significant, and I want to just point out to you a few things about this psalm as we go through it. He says, first of all, blessed or happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It's interesting here, he uses three different words to describe sin. In these opening verses, but he also uses three different expressions to describe how God deals with sin. In these opening verses, okay, the three words are this: transgression, sin, and iniquity. Right? Transgression means uh, means rebellion. Okay, it's the idea of breaking the law. The word sin it means missing the mark. In fact, it's a it's a word that was used in uh, in archery and in and in other kind of. Uh, accuracy kind of uh, uh, terminology. When the archer would shoot at the target, they would measure how far his arrow came from the bullseye. And that mark, they would make a mark. That mark was called the sin mark. And it had a reference to how far off he was from the target, from where he was aiming. So sin is missing the mark. And the third term is iniquity. Iniquity here uh, has the idea of trouble. And and um, and corruption. It it has more to do with the consequences even of sin, what sin brings about. Okay, and David is describing sin here. He's not necessarily talking about three different kinds of sin. Well, there's this kind of sin and that kind of sin and that kind of sin. He's using these words because they one word's just not enough to really describe what sin is. Okay. He has to have more. So he understands that sin is, he's giving this kind of full picture. I love it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon calls this the three-headed dog at the gate of hell. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Of course, Spurgeon also goes on to say that the glorious Lord has shut his barking against us forever. That's what this psalm is about. David here talking about sin. But not just about sin and what it is. We understand what sin is here. All these things is transgression. It's sin. It's iniquity. But then notice what he describes how God deals with it. He says, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word forgiven has the idea of lifting off a load. It's it's, it's literally the, the idea is that someone has got a load on their back and you pick it up and you lift it off of them. He says, your transgression is lifted off of you. Happy. Happy is the one whose transgression has been lifted from him. Whose sin is covered. This word covered is really interesting. It's the idea of of, uh, hiding something that's offensive. You know, when something is offensive, we want to cover it up. We don't want to see it, right? We want to hide it. So we all do that, right? We, we cover it. We put something over it, you know, because it's offensive. And we don't want to see it. We don't want anybody else to see it. We just cover it up. Okay. And, and so we, 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 we cover this thing. But, well, this is what's fascinating to me. Because normally covering up sin is not a good thing, is it? Covering up sin is a bad thing. See, when you cover something up that's a problem, it doesn't fix the problem, does it? <laughs> You could be, we, we, we could do that here, right, you know. Oh, I got a, you know, dirty spot in the carpet. We'll just cover it up. You know, oh, well, we're on the 50th anniversary. Let's just cover it up, right. Let's just cover everything up. Um, I'm mindful of the, uh, the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, China, because they tried to get Beijing ready. And I read some articles about this. They tried to get the city of Beijing ready for all of the people that are going to come, because there's millions of people who are going to be coming there from all over the world. And they wanted it to look nice. They wanted it to look presentable so that it would look appealing to the visitors. But they couldn't do it. So they actually faked it on some buildings. They actually, like, covered the buildings, these massive buildings, up to make them look nice and make them look like they had lights on in the windows and stuff when the buildings weren't even complete. Because they just couldn't do it. It was, it was like, so they just covered them up, you know? Well, here's the thing, right? Covering something up doesn't deal with the problem. So covering up sin doesn't remove the problem. Covering up a sore doesn't heal the sore. And that's what this is so striking to me because it says happy is the man whose sin is covered. Happy is the man whose sin is covered. And yet the book of Proverbs we read that the one who covers his sin will not prosper. But he that confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. How is covering our sin a good thing? Well, it's, it's only because this is only one of the things David is using to describe it here. See, if he was just saying that God covered our sin, that's all God did, then that wouldn't be very comforting because all it would mean is God just hid, hid something that was offensive. I'll just put a cover over it so nobody sees it. That's what we do that's how we act toward our sin, right? We'll just cover it up. We'll just put something over it. We'll just hide it in the corner or in the closet. We'll put it somewhere where nobody will see it. We don't want to deal with it. We'll just cover it. But see, when we just cover the sin, it doesn't do anything about the sin. It doesn't resolve it. But see, that's where we put all these together. We understand the first thing he says is the transgression is lifted. It's removed. It is hidden away. It is covered from sight. It's, the offensive thing is covered up. And then thirdly, he says, blessed is the man, happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The idea there is, is, is charging it to our account. So this is what does God do with our sin? Well, He lifts it off of us. He covers the shame and the guilt of the offensive thing. And He does not charge us with the iniquity that we we rightfully own. That's what God does. David says, happy is the one who receives this from God. Happy is the one who experiences this. Do you want to be truly happy? There's, There's something that's an impediment to your happiness today. And it's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your parents. It's not the money in your bank account or the lack thereof it's not the kind of car that you drive or the job that you have or the clothes that you wear or anything else none of those things are impediments to your happiness the impediment to your happiness is your sin That's what David is, is indicating here happy is the man whose sin has been lifted off whose guilt has been covered whose iniquity has not been charged to him you want happiness but you have a problem problem is our sin gets in the way so david offers us i think in this psalm some direction by way of his own example david offers here personal testimony of how we deal with the sin that brings unhappiness and how we can be truly happy and so there's three things I want to share with you this morning that David says. We'll see it, but I, I, do, want to, I do want to put this in its context. Most people believe that Psalm 32 was written by David uh, after he had committed uh, adultery and murder. David, remember, was the king in Israel. And as David had become more secure in his throne and his, his kingdom was established, it got to the point where David no longer went and led the armies out to battle. He stayed back at home while his generals led the fight. And, of course, most of us would say, well, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. We don't ask our commander-in-chief to go out and lead the armies into battle. He just commands them and sends them, and his generals do them." Okay. Makes perfect sense. But David found himself then at home with nothing to do. And as a result, he got into trouble. David saw a woman bathing herself in the privacy of her own home behind the the wall around her house that should have provided her with plenty of protection from prying eyes. And yet David chose to look over and see this woman and he he desired her. And so when he, he, he called for her and he committed adultery, we find out that she was pregnant. Worst thing that David could hear, he didn't know what to do, and so he came up with an idea, a plan that he was going to solve this problem. And so he tried to get her husband uh, to, to, to come back from the battlefield and to find a way to cover this up, and that didn't work. And when that didn't work, he just decided, you know what, I'm going to have this guy killed. I'll just kill the husband, and then there'll be no one to question what happened with his wife. And that's what happens. Uriah is killed on the battlefield at David's command. And David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And this baby that's in her womb develops and grows. And we don't know how long it took. We don't know what kind of time span there was. In fact, you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 11 and 12. And at the very end of Second Samuel 11, uh, we find kind of an interesting statement because we find the Lord offering His own assessment of the situation After David has committed these sins and crimes, the last two verses of 2 Samuel 11 say, When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had committed Gross sin, immorality, lying, deceit, and murder. And some time passes. We don't know how much, but some time passes. In chapter 12 and verse 1, it says Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet, a prophet of God. Nathan came before David. And he told David a story, a story of a, of a man who was poor, who had only one little sheep that he loved dearly. In fact, he, he let that sheep stay with him in his house. And he, and he held that sheep in his arms and he fed that sheep from off of his own table. This sheep was, was, was dear to him. And that poor man had a wealthy neighbor who had flocks and flocks of sheep. And when he had a guest come from far away, rather than killing one of his own sheep, he stole the little sheep that belonged to his poor neighbor and he killed that sheep and he fed it to his guest. And David was angry. And David, hearing this story, said, that man deserves to pay four times what he stole. And in that incredibly powerful moment, Nathan said to David, you are the man David it's you you are the guilty one this is what you have done david and here's where this account is interesting and it's something i've never really considered before this week David's response in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13 is this. He said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But I have to admit that all the times that I've read that passage before, I've always had the picture in my mind of David. David kind of coming to the realization that he had done wrong. David who had been going along thinking everything was good, and then it was like all of a sudden, whoa, this kind of caught up with him. But Psalm 32 suggests to us that that is not the case. It suggests to us that when when Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, you are the man, David's response was the most amazing relief you can imagine. You think, how would it be relief for the prophet of God to come before the king, to stick his finger in his face and say, you have sinned against God? How would that bring relief? Well, look at Psalm 32 and look at what David says about this time. Verse 3, he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. We don't know how long, we don't know how much time transpired from the last verse of chapter 11 to the first verse of chapter 12. When David took Bathsheba to be his wife and when Nathan came to visit, some time passed. All we know is that in that time, David says, I was miserable. He says, my bones grew old. He, he felt it in his body. He said, my, my vitality, my life was turned into the drought of summer. I think about a parched and dry land where there's no rain and no water. The ground is cracked and barren. Nothing grows. And David said, That's what my life has been. All these l- long days and nights, weeks, months, maybe. You know that David, when David was king. You suppose every Sabbath day David had to go to the tabernacle with the rest of the people and praise God, sing songs, offer sacrifices. David maybe even sang some of his own psalms in that time. If you were there with David, I don't think you would have known what was in David's heart. You'd have looked, you know, down the row and you'd seen David sitting there and he'd be singing the songs and he'd be doing everything, putting his money in the offering plate and you know, shaking hands during the handshake time. I don't know if he did handshake time in the tabernacle or not. Okay. All right, but to, but to put the analogy on it of our own service is the way we do things. You get the picture, David was there, he was participating in the quote-unquote worship of the Lord with God's people putting on a front. And all the while, David says, my, my bones were growing old. My life was turning into the drought of summer. What a sad and pathetic way to live. And yet that's what David says what he experienced. It wasn't just his body, but his spirit. He says, My groaning all the day long in verse 3. David's spirit within him was filled with pain and anguish. Oh, outwardly, he could still put on the show. He could still do what he had to do. He could go through those motions. But inwardly, his spirit was crushed. You see, this is why I say I think that when, when Nathan pointed at David and said, David, you're the man. I think David was relieved because for months David had been hiding, had been living a lie, had been deceiving everyone by pretending to be right with God, by pretending to worship God, by pretending to serve God. And all the while in his heart he was drying up, shriveling, His his life and his energy and his vitality were just pouring out, being wasted. And when Nathan confronted David, it was like, finally, finally I can stop living this way. Finally I can stop experiencing this. Finally I can stop wasting away. This is what's just amazing to me. David says at the end of verse 2, Happy is the man in whose spirit is no deceit. David can say this to us because David knows what it's like to live with deceit in your spirit. To live... with one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside to put on the show of being godly, of worshiping God, of loving the Lord. When all the while inside, he knew it was a lie. He knew that it was a fake. He knew that he was a phony. He knew he was a hypocrite. And he hated it. This this destroyed David. David. This sapped all of his joy and all of his happiness and all of his peace and contentment and satisfaction. He had none of that. Because the whole time he's going through this and and he's keeping his mouth shut and he's not saying anything. He's living a lie and he knows it. So in verse 5, David gives us what I'll give you as the first step. The first rung of the ladder, so to speak, if we're to have happiness. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Where's the starting point? Where do we begin if we want to be truly Happy. Well, it starts with this. We have to confess sin. True happiness begins in this place. You have to confess your sin. And by the way, I understand that this is really important for us to get. This psalm is written by a believer. David is not talking here about the experience of someone who is not a believer, someone who doesn't know the Lord. He's talking here about the experience of a believer, a follower of God. There's definitely a similarity here. I mean, the, 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 the solution doesn't change. If you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in Him to save you, then you have to start in the same place. You have to confess your sin. You have to admit that you are guilty that you have sinned and violated God's law, that you have rebelled against Him. But understand, David is saying this as a believer. He says, I sinned. Lord, I stop hiding it. I confessed it. I acknowledge my sin. I have not hidden my iniquity. This is the starting point. When Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man, it's like, finally, I get to be honest here, finally I can be out in the open about this. Of course, how foolish is it to think that we can hide it, right? That somehow if we don't say anything that God won't find out, that somehow we can hide it and keep it under wraps, because God knows. But that's what I think is so merciful about Nathan coming to confront David because when Nathan came and he, sh- and he looked at David and he said, you're the man, there's no way Nathan could have known that except God, go- God gave it to him. And so David realizes at that moment, here I have been trying to hide this. Here I've been trying to keep it in. And God, God wasn't tricked. God knew all about it. How foolish, how stupid I wasted all this time. I suffered for months hiding my sin and living a double life. How foolish. I wasn't wasn't pleasing God. God knew better. And understand this, He wasn't pleasing Himself either. You see, we have to ask ourselves this question. When we indulge in sin, when we engage and embrace uh, sin, we have to ask ourselves this question. Who are you pleasing? You're not pleasing the Lord, but you're not pleasing yourself either. I know you say, well, that's, that's the problem. Sin sure, sound, sure seems pleasing. Yeah, but listen to what David says. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. Your hand, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Listen, believer, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then sin is not pleasing you. Sin brings pain and suffering. It brings hurt, misery, despair. David is relieved because he confessed his sin. He exposed it. He exposed it. He, he brought it to the light of day. This is why I just find this so fascinating And in verse 1, David says, happy is the man whose sin is covered. This seems completely contrary. How is my sin covered when I expose it? How is my sin covered when I talk about it? When I bring it up to God? Well, that's the whole point. You see, we don't cover our sin. God does. Because He deals with our sin. Because He forgives he covers the offense, he hides it. It's gone when he does it. But the only way we get there is by doing the opposite. So we can't get there ourselves. We can't hide our sin and cover it ourselves and take care of it. That doesn't work. We have to be open and honest. We have to confess our sin to the Lord. We have to acknowledge it. I'm not saying that we put this on a billboard outside your house. I'm saying you go to the Lord. You confess it to him. You pray to him. You cry out to him and you say, God, I'm tired of lying. I'm tired of deceiving. I'm tired of being miserable about this, Lord. You already know. But let me be honest. Let me be open. Let me be transparent. Confess my sin. That's what David says. So that's the starting point. You confess your sin. But notice what else he says. Verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. There's something special here about what David is talking about the fellowship that we have with the Lord, the, the, the opportunity that we have to see Him and to not be afraid. You see, when we are open and transparent with the Lord, when we confess our sin, then it allows us to be able to see God as our hiding place, as our shelter, our protector, rather than seeing God as our judge rather than seeing God as a fearful thing. When we're honest, when we're open, when we confess our sin. When we turn away from our sin. You see, there's something here about repentance that's so important. In fact, he suggests this to us in verse 6, that there is an opportunity, there is a window in which we can confess our sin. There's a window in which we can turn away from our sin and receive the grace of God. But that window is not forever. He says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Not that God is hard to find. Not that he doesn't want to hear us pray. See, I think this is the thing. Sometimes when we sin, because we know how we are um, and we know how we deal with this, when someone does wrong to us, when someone hurts us or wounds us or offends us, we tend to hold that against them for a while, you know. When someone comes to us and, and they've done wrong and they, and they ask us to forgive them, they say, you know what, I, I'm sorry I sinned and, and I was wrong and I, mis- and I spoke against you or I did something that was unkind. We say, well, that's fine. You can come back. Go sit in the corner now. I don't want to hear from you for a while. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, put your head down. Don't, I, I'm not even sure I want eye contact at this point. I mean, you're in the room, but that's just, okay. Gradually, we'll warm back up. Am I, am I far off? I don't think so. But see, here's the problem. See, we, we begin to think about God that way. We think that that's how God responds to us because that's how we respond to us. We think that God says, okay, I'll take you back, but you know, Trust has to be earned. So, just letting you know that. I'll I'll, I'll forgive you, but I won't trust you. Well, That's not the way God does it. David says, I confessed my sin to you. He says, I turned to you and you forgave. You lifted off my sins. He says... The godly will pray to you in a time when you may be found. Not because God doesn't want us to come to him. Not because he's sitting there going, well, I guess I'll take him back again. I know it's been like the hundredth time in a row. I'm a little tired of this, but I guess I'll take him back. That's not the way he's describing it here. No, he says you need to understand there is a window of opportunity. Why? Because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. That's really what verses 6 and 7 are about. Judgment is coming for sin, and guess what? If you're godly, you'll understand that, and you will do something about your sin now while you still can. That's what he's saying here. See, we have to repent while we can. David says you have to confess your sin. That's step one. But you've got to repent while you still can. Mindful of of, uh, Esau, Jacob's brother, Back in the book of Genesis, Esau was a corrupt man, not a believing man, not a a man of faith. The New Testament tells us that Esau, when he had realized his mistake, the, the New Testament tells us that Esau found no place of repentance, even though he sought it with tears. I think Esau is an example of someone who, when he sinned, He did not seek the Lord while he could be found. And Esau never never found the Lord in repentance. Pharaoh is another example. Moses came to Pharaoh and said, the God of heaven, the true God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to listen. And after a certain point, the Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think Pharaoh went past that window of opportunity. He missed the time when, when repentance was possible, when mercy could be had. He crossed over into the time of judgment, and once it became time for judgment, there was no going back, and Pharaoh suffered greatly because of it. There's numerous examples of this in Scripture. Uh, Judas would be another one. The children of Israel... When, when Jeremiah the prophet began to speak to them, Jeremiah basically said, listen, you should turn back to the Lord, but you should also know that it's too late for you to miss the judgment. It's coming. The window of opportunity to, re, to, to repent and to, be, to receive grace and mercy has passed. Now, well, I think that's what David is saying here. Everyone who is godly will pray to you in a time when you may be found. Here's the window of opportunity why? Because judgment is coming, a flood of great waters. But see, when the, when the godly man, when we realize that we have sinned and we turn to the Lord and we repent and we say, Lord, I, I, I'll be honest with you about my sin. I'll tell you what I did. I understand it's sinful. It's wrong. And we confess our sin and we turn to him. You see, then when the judgment comes, he preserves us from it. You see, then he goes from being the judge who punishes to being the hiding place who protects That's what David says. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Earlier he was surrounded with sin. Now he's surrounded with songs of deliverance. Songs of praise. Because God has delivered the one who repents and confesses sin. There's one other lesson that David gives us here, and I think it's important. Verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you. This, by the way, is the Lord speaking, I think. Because it changes to the first person here, and I think this is the Lord speaking now. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. You see, there's another lesson that we can learn when we have strayed away from the Lord and we have gone our own way and we have gone into sin and we've suffered the, the grave consequences of the chastening of the Lord and then we have repented and we've come back and confessed our sin. David says, listen, there's two ways as a believer for you to live. There's the easy way and the hard way. You see, you can... You can follow the Lord's direction. He says here, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to lead you. I will guide you with my eye. think what he's saying is, I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm going to watch over you to make sure you do it. The reason God does that is God does not want us to get further and further into sin. God wants us to walk in righteousness as his children. So he promises, hey, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to instruct you. And then I'm going to watch you. I'm going to watch over you. Why? Um, Again, I think of this, the analogy here seems very much like a parent. parent A parent will instruct their child and then watch over them to make sure that they do what they are instructed to do. You don't tell your child what to do and then walk away and say, well, I'm just going to assume they get it done. And I'm never going to check up on them. I'm never going to make sure. I'll just, you know. No, if you care about it being done, you'll check up on them, won't you? Trust but verify. I think that's a, a, a well-known phrase that's been used in the past. We've got to do that. That's what God does. He says, listen, I'm going to instruct you and I'm going to watch over you. But then he says this, don't be like the mule. Well, that's a flattering comparison, Right? Don't be like the stubborn mule or the horse. Now, see, you can tell the horse what to do. You can say, okay, now, horse, here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to get on your back. You're going to go around the corral. You're going to do this thing, this, and that, and the other, and then we're going to be done, and we're going to win a prize or something like that. You can do that. Probably not going to work. So what do you have to do? You put a bit in the horse's mouth. You put a bridle over its head, and you use that to control the horse. You physically manipulate the horse to do what you want. David says, listen, God can do that to you if he must. David says, I'm speaking from personal experience. God has done this to me. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, my groaning all day long. I know what it's like for God to have to treat me like an animal and have to force me to come back to him, to make me miserable, miserable. That's the really simple principle of how a bit works in a horse's mouth. The bit causes just a little bit of pain. Enough that the horse will not want it and they'll move away from it. So you move, you you turn the bit and you get the horse to move away from the pain and the horse moves where they want it to go. Now the horse is trained right, then he doesn't have to cause them any pain because he can. He can be sensitive to it. That's what, God, that's what David is saying. Listen, just be sensitive to the Lord's leading. Be willing to follow. This is the third thing. We have to follow the Lord willingly. Okay. Don't be stubborn. Don't be determined to go on your own path. If you decide that you're not going to listen to what David is saying, if you decide, you know what, I'm going to just do my own thing and I'm going to continue to persist going my own way, doing my thing, I'm not going to confess my sin. I'm not going to be open. I'm not going to repent and turn to the Lord. I'm just going to keep going my way. Guess what? God can and will use physical means to control you if necessary. That's what the chastening of the Lord is all about. But David says, you don't have to do that. See, so you don't have to experience the chastening of the Lord if you'll willingly follow him. He'll guide you. He'll direct you. He'll watch over you with his eye. Just follow him. Don't be stubborn. Verse 10, he says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. That word wicked there, I think has more, not so much wicked in the sense of unbelieving as it is stubborn. Willing to go your own way. Wandering is is maybe a better word there. The one who wanders. Guess what? The one who wanders many sorrows. You can do that. Christian, you can follow that path. If you want to, you can follow that path. You can wander. And you will suffer for it. Or, he says, he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Think about it. Be surrounded by the mercy of God. David concludes this psalm with a reminder to be glad, be happy. You see, this psalm is not supposed to be a downer. This psalm is not supposed to be a psalm that, that, that we struggle with. And as believers, we're not to be living, defeated, and down, and sorrowful, and sad. We're to be glad. We're to be happy to to sing and to shout for joy, he says. Why? Well, because happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and happy is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. confess your sin. If you want to be happy, confess your sin. Be honest with God about your sin. If you want to be happy, turn to Him while you can. Before judgment comes, before the chastening hand of God comes, turn to Him. Confess your faults quickly. And then be willing to follow Him. I like the way he ends this. Shout, shout, For joy. All you upright in heart, you ought to rejoice. You ought to be glad today. If you have experienced the forgiveness of God for your sin, you ought to be happy right now. That ought to be the normal way that you live your life. Because when everything else, when you boil it all down and you stop and you think, you know what? God's forgiven my sins. He has taken that load off my shoulders, He has covered up my guilt. He will not and does not charge my sin against me. And what we read in Romans 4 not only does he not charge my sin against me, he credits his righteousness to my account. That's just how good God is to me. So be happy. Shout for joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray.